Hmm. Are you sure about that? Is that what you think? Is that so? Hi, I'm Sokka, the host of Sokka's Is That So, a show where we challenge conventional wisdom across a range of industries, hoping to get you to ask better questions and not take things at face value. I'm originally from Botswana and Nigeria. However, I've had the chance to travel through Europe, North America, and Latin America to have many of my assumptions challenged and combat my biases. The goal of the show is to help you learn along with me as we challenge more conventional norms. We're recording the show during the coronavirus, so hopefully you should have more than enough time to listen to these. Let's get started. Alright, so on today's episode of Sokka's Is That So, we're going to be talking about the misconceptions around the recruitment industry and with a bit of a slant towards innovation. Later on, we'll be speaking to a good friend of mine, Drew, who actually owns his own recruitment firm called Bamboo Crowd. Talk about a snazzy name. He uh, has been in the space for a little while, and he's very knowledgeable on recruiting for companies that are looking for innovative minds, so such as Deloitte or What If or Fahrenheit 212, IDEO, and you name them. So he's a pretty good guy to chat about. But before we get into that, let's talk about some of the misconceptions around the recruitment industry. So one of the ones I thought of was, you know, salaries tend to be lower as a result of the recruitment fees that you have to pay, or at least that's what people think. Ideally, I would presume that I'd want to go straight to the company that I want to work for, you know, whether it's just knocking on their door, filling out a form online or whatever it is, that would probably be the easiest and probably the cheapest way to go about getting a job. But the reality is Working with a recruiter doesn't actually cost you that much money. At least that's what I think on the onset. And the reason being is that it's actually the company that ends up paying for the recruiter, not yourself. But if you think about it in the reverse, because the company has to pay the recruiter, would that mean a lower salary? I did some digging and I found out that actually at the end of the day, the salary doesn't change, even though they have to pay that fee on top of whatever salary it is. Now, you'd think that fee would be, I don't know, 1%, 2%, 3%. After doing a bit of research, I found out it could be as high as 25% per employee. And this is 25% of their annual salary. This range obviously goes from about 10 to about 25%. But can you imagine if someone makes, I don't know, a really good salary, let's say of 100K. I mean, 20% is 20,000 bucks. Imagine that across four or five guys or people. Man, I might be in the wrong industry. I should probably start a recruitment firm called Saka's Recruitment Group. And I'd probably end up making a lot of money. That kind of makes me think, though, that it would probably be really difficult to actually fill these kinds of positions. Because if they can make so much per employee, the chances are it's hard to actually fill those kinds of roles that can command those kinds of figures. Anyway, another misconception that I thought about was the fact that recruiters are are predominantly seen as only being concerned with filling that role at any and all costs. So I think that this might not necessarily be true because if you really think about it, recruiters at the end of the day want repeat business from whoever the company is or the the end client, so to speak. And if you fill that role with bad clients or with bad uh, personnel or recruits, should I say, then at the end of the day, you'll end up burning that bridge if someone ends up leaving after six months. So I imagine that it's in their best interest as recruiters to find quality candidates. I don't think it's just a matter of them just trying to fill a role at any and all costs. Because as we just alluded to in the fees, this could be a good long-term proposition for them. 
Another misconception was that recruiters have no control in the hiring process. That could not be further from the truth, based on my personal experience as well. Uh, I remember when I actually was looking for a role, the recruiters were seen as the gatekeepers, sort of, or the first filters in the entire process. And what that means is that they actually do have a role or they have some level of control over the hiring process from the onset because when you're actually having a discussion with them, they're trying to see if you have the elements needed for that role and if they can put you forth as a worthy candidate. Because ultimately, if they put you forth and you're viewed as a bad candidate, that company will stop going to that recruiter for certain roles. So they do have a role based on my perception in terms of the hiring process. That first conversation, view it as an interview in itself, the way you come across, your body language, the way you dress, all those types of things. I'd actually like to touch on something here, which is the modern day way of trying to find a job, which is putting your CV into LinkedIn or whatever it is. I'll tell you from firsthand experience, I graduated from a really good school and I had a really good degree, but I was going about it the wrong way. I put my CV or resume into almost 200 different platforms trying to find a job. And I was wondering why on earth am I not getting these callbacks? I got two or three maybe, but I was like, if I'm going to the best school and I have a stellar resume, why am I not getting these callbacks? And I realized that a lot of these softwares are the filtering criteria, which end up getting ultimately passed to the recruiter in these different companies. And these softwares were not picking up the keywords that were apparently missing from my CV. So it didn't matter how good I was. Ultimately, I was at the mercy of software. It wasn't until I changed my tack or, or the way of going about finding a job completely, which was purely by networking, going to meetup.com, using um, the campus recruitment facilities and all those types of things that I started to see better opportunity. At least that was my experience. I've heard some people say that they've gotten jobs online, but personally, that's never really worked for me. LinkedIn, maybe by sending emails and, you know, it's a bit more personable. But yeah, unless you're a wizard getting those keywords in your resume or CV, then that might be a tough call. But I digress a little bit. So let's go into the misconception about the recruitment industry, which primarily deals with the fact that your references aren't that important, should I say. Now, <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but... Obviously, I try and get the best references I can, but those people sometimes are not the most available. So I'll, I'd give, you know, someone that I kind of know or someone that I've had a rough acquaintance with, hoping that they'd give me a, a good uh, reference, actually. But these references are more important than you'd think. I actually didn't expect them to call these references. I thought it was just a nice to have or something like that in case things went bad. But no, they actually do call your references. And what they say is really important. In fact, it might be even more important than what's on your CV because that is real firsthand experience of someone that interacted with you, not your perception of how good you are or your how amazing your experience is with that one internship that you did at Nando's or whatever it is. Make sure that your references are spot on. At least that's what I've seen from my personal experience. Another misconception is that your current base salary doesn't need to be 100% revealed to the recruiter. Now, for me, this is a bit of a tricky one because if you tell them what your current base salary is, then you'd think you're only getting an offer for maybe five, 10% more than your current base salary is. But the reality of it is that the recruiter is actually incentivized to get you the highest salary that you possibly can. Why that is, stick around 
and we'll find out from Drew later on in the episode. The recruiter is really incentivized by those fees which I alluded to earlier on, but your base salary, what it currently is, doesn't really affect the kind of deal that you'll end up getting or how they go about their job. They're trying to fill the, the role with the best candidate, making sure that the candidate and the actual company itself is happy with the situation that ends up uh, coming about. Another misconception that I was thinking of that I thought was pretty pertinent, especially given the conversation we're going to have with Drew around recruiting for innovative people. So people that think outside the box. You know, there's only so much you can convey on a CV or resume. When people are looking for game changers or people that think outside the box or people that challenge the conventional thinking or norms or ways of doing things, it's really about that process you go through during the entire hiring process. From the pitch that you'd have to do for some of the roles, at least most of the roles I've done, I've had to have it get or give a presentation of the way I would go about solving a problem. And it's very interesting because it reveals the way you think. They're more interested in the way you think or the way you come across as opposed to what you've written down on a piece of paper. Now, when it comes to innovative thinking, I typically try and use different frameworks. So a SWOT analysis, which is a, situ um, a combination of your weaknesses, opportunities, strengths and threats of the marketplace. Or it could be anything from, I mean, there's a BCG matrix, which I use all sorts of frameworks, but those just help guide your thinking. And if you bring up these frameworks in your interviews, especially in the parts where you have to present, it just shows them that you're capable of working in different or ambiguous situations and using some sort of framework to come up with a solution or a range of possible solutions. I've seen people do innovative things even just to get their foot in the door. So one of the coolest things I saw was someone that actually created a digital resume that was a game, a video game, and you had to go through the different levels in order to see what their experience was like. Now, he got obviously thousands of callbacks and all that kind of stuff, but it got his foot in the door and it showed a bit of innovative thinking, especially in this day and age when rudimentary tasks, sort of data entry or bookkeeping and account keeping and all that kind of stuff is being automated. What people are actually looking for are the critical skills of being able to think from a holistic perspective. That's what you should try and highlight. That's the innovative thinking that people want. Now, I'm not saying you should go design a video game just to get your foot in the door, but I am saying that along the journey, you have to do something that makes you stand out from the crowd, something that shows that you're able to think outside the box just a little bit. Well, let's actually go and have that conversation with Drew and let's hear what he has to say from both the recruiting perspective, but also on thinking innovate in an innovative manner and in a way that gets the attention of the recruiters. Drew, thanks for joining. Um, on today's episode of Soccer's Is That So, we're going to be talking about some of the myths and misconceptions around innovation, but also the recruitment industry, so both simultaneously. And I know that that's something that you're really focused on. So um, the first question I really have is, um, how do companies try and foster the spirit of innovation? Do they typically try and do something in-house or do they recruit innovative people in order to get uh, that innovative sort of mindset? Yeah, I think it's, it's a good question. I think it's a combination of both. Um, so there's definitely a push on trying to hire people with uh, an innovation uh, toolkit or background to try and bring that outside in thinking or creativity. Um, but actually, I think it comes from the top of a business. So the ability to uh, create a culture of innovation where everyone can get involved. I think innovation is something that happens at all levels of a the business. There might be someone facilitating or leading it as a discipline or a role. Um, but I think uh, through lowering barriers internally, getting people involved uh, in idea generation um, and new thinking, 
um, is how you really foster uh, a spirit of innovation. And I think by bringing people in who've got a background in innovation, um, it allows for new thinking, trying new methodologies, and again, bringing that outside perspective. But I think it really comes from the top. Um, so having a culture that really allows for, for people to get involved is the main thing. So having that uh, board level uh, or senior level buy into the importance of innovation, uh, which I think particularly uh, in times like now where uh, the world is um, in complete flux and things are changing, um, innovation is, is is more important than ever. Lots of companies are needing to relook at their businesses, whether that, that's their model, how they engage with customers. So I think innovation will become more and more prevalent. Um, and I think that will call for uh, all uh, areas of the business to really get involved. So it's really coming from the top, but bringing in some of that outside perspective and new ways of thinking and working, whether it's design thinking um, or a different type of methodology, which might unlock um, some new opportunity spaces. Um, so I think that's probably what I would say. Yeah, you know, it sounds like innovation is something that can be culturally fostered, whether it's bringing people in or from the top down, as you mentioned. But is it really the case that innovation is something that can be taught or is there sort of like a natural talent to it that some people are just more innovative than others? Yeah, again, I think it's a good question. I, I think my answer is probably yes and no. Um, I think uh, anyone can get involved in innovation. I think great ideas come from people coming together who've got different outlooks or different perspectives. Um, but I also think that um, uh, the ability to think about the what if scenarios and outside of the box takes a certain type of person. And I think training, whether you attend a course, you can pick up some brilliant skills. But actually, I think uh, the ability to take creative leaps um, and what a lot of people say is the fusion of left and right brain thinking uh, it is kind of a mindset. And I think you're normally one of those types of people. Entrepreneurs are always very innovative. Um, and they are slightly different from uh, from a lot of people. They take lots of risks. They take creative leaps. Um, so I think it is uh, normally kind of inbuilt into you. I think great innovation happens when people have that blend of idea development and the ability to think about the strategic or the commercial side as well. Um, so I think it is something that is hard to teach. I think you can be involved in the process and you can certainly learn different methodologies, but it is very much a mindset. You are either someone who is uh, a risk taker, uh, takes leaps, can see things other people don't see, can cut through the clutter and spot the, the trends or the opportunities. Um, so I don't think you can really teach that stuff. Um, but that being said, uh, innovation is something everyone can be involved in, just at differing degrees. So I think the people that are leading and facilitating it are perhaps those people that have experience in either doing it or, or other people that are able to see things from a different angle, think outside of that box, um, do things other people might not have thought of. Uh, and I think it's quite hard to teach some of those things. I think you either have that type of mindset and outlook um, or, or you don't. Um, so that would probably be my view. I think lots of people uh, would debate it and, and many would think you can learn it. But I think that ability to, to really see what others don't uh, is, is very hard to teach. Man, it sounds like it must be really hard to recruit for innovative roles because how exactly do you judge that, right? I mean, on someone's CV, if they're not very good CV writers, um, it might be hard to actually judge, you know, is this person a good fit for this role? Um, mm. or how innovative they are. What are some of the frameworks or ways that people can judge or maybe not say judge, but um, analyze or assess how innovative someone actually is? Is it up based on how many patents they have? Is it based on how they present themselves? I mean, how do you, how do, you do that? Yeah, great question. So we're still trying to figure that out. Nearly 10 years in, we're trying to crack that. But I think the reality is, is that LinkedIn's brilliant. It's a great self-promotional tool. 
Um, and, and it's great for that. But I think the ability to uh, look at your innovation capability, LinkedIn cannot do that. So I think you break it back down to the idea that innovation is the beauty of simplicity. Um, and it comes down to asking the right question. So CVs, LinkedIn can do some of this stuff, but I think it's the way that you articulate um, your story. So innovation, certainly in the context of innovation consulting, uh, and I'd imagine very similar in-house, is the ability to tell great stories. So that is what we look for when we are recruiting or interviewing people. It's their ability to kind of cut through that clutter, um, but, but really show uh, simplicity. So asking them questions like, uh, what was the problem? Uh, what was your solution? And what was the impact? But really honing in on what did you specifically do? I think that's what we're interested to understand. And then in that question, you start to get a sense of were they the one that was um, supporting someone leading it? Or were they the one that had that big breakthrough idea? Um, so I think it's asking those types of questions. And that's often what would happen. People will put a profile on LinkedIn or, or create a resume and send it through. And our role is to uh, cut through that, ask probing questions, which uh, focus on what did you specifically do? It's less about the innovation uh, methodology or the jargon. It's what was your eureka moment? How did you develop the idea? How did you take that into market? How did you get buy-in? Those are the types of questions that we will be asking. And I think you can articulate some of that stuff on LinkedIn. Um, but it, it goes back to that idea of can you tell a brilliant, compelling story? Um, because that's what it's all about. Can you get buy-in from a client if you work in a consultancy or in-house? Can you get buy-in from um, the finance team or whoever's in control of that budget? So it's that storytelling ability that uh, you can you can do. Hence, uh, you know, books are out there. People tell great stories. Um, but the ability to do it in a room and really capture and engage an audience is something that I think you can only test when you have a face-to-face conversation or a phone call. Uh, it's, it's to see how they uh, they tell that story and talk through their specific role. Um, so I think, uh, I, I guess a bit of both. I think you can do some of it in LinkedIn, but actually it's when you're in that room with either the recruiter or the hiring manager, it's that story telling um, in a really engaging way that, that showcases what you specifically did, whether that's a piece of work uh, or a case study that you're talking through. Yeah, I'm just wondering how easy is it to get that opportunity to actually showcase that you know something or that your your skill set is relevant for the role? Because, you know, nowadays people put their stuff on LinkedIn or maybe into some sort of automated system. Uh, it looks for some key words. And if you don't have those key words, you don't get the opportunity to actually showcase and tell that story that you're talking about. So from a recruitment perspective, um, uh, Let's talk a little bit about the softwares versus the opportunity to actually physically network one-to-one. Um, is it a case that you, you know most companies are using the software and they filter our candidates that way, or is it a result of your networks? How do you balance that debate out from, from a recruitment perspective? Yeah, again, a good question. I think for us, we, we typically don't work on a skill basis. So I think if you're recruiting for a technology job, you can, you can search across technology languages or specific skills. Um, but actually, innovation is it's so diverse, which is why it's so exciting. It's such an eclectic mix of skill sets that you can't really search for specific things. I mean, you can break it down. If you want to be putting keywords in your CV, you might want to talk about uh, idea development or facilitation or workshops or business models, depending on which spectrum you sit on, be that uh, the, the idea side or the commercial side. Um, but I think for us, we don't tend to search against specific skill sets. Um, I think it's more about um, 
uh, a combination of different things. So we use LinkedIn. We might search against specific companies. And I know that alienates a lot of people. So it's not the best piece of advice that I can give. Um, but innovation is um, a fairly incestuous space, particularly on the consulting side. So most people know uh, the key players. And I think that's what we've, we've built that knowledge over the last 10 years. Um, but I think putting in some of the, the keywords is important. So the ability to uh, translate an insight into an idea, that type of terminology, and then you back that up with a story. Um, but for us, it's thinking about um, who are the people that have got really interesting experiences, not so much about the company. I think there's a, there's a, there's a bit of that. Um, but who's got really interesting experience? Who's talking about uh, creating breakthrough propositions or new customer experiences? And it's getting that type of terminology so you don't miss out on that. I can't be searchable because I've got nothing. If, as long as you have some of it, I think that's fine. But I think for us, it's looking at uh, key pieces of experiences versus bullying searching where we might stick in innovation or, or a, a particular type of methodology. It's more about uh, the way that you tell your story. Um, and most people for us apply for jobs. Um, so we actually get the opportunity to look at people's resumes or CVs. Um, so hopefully it gives people more of an opportunity. I think um, don't wait there to be found. Go and find a job. Cover letters uh, don't really exist nowadays. They, they very rarely get read. I think a lot of people still do them. Um, but the reality is they do not get read. Again, it goes back to the notion of innovation is the beauty of simplicity. Tell that story in a very clear, compelling, engaging way. And you can capture that in your opening profile of your CV. If I was to say, how do you structure your CV? It would be opening profile. It should be uh, clear, concise, to the point, but it should not be can do, team player, all of that, uh, all of those buzzwords that uh, you learn when you're at university. It's more about here's some impact. Here's something I've done. Here is something that is specifically relatable. So I have experience in proposition design and I've done this. There's something tangible straight away. And then you might have here's three to five highlights. It's those types of things that help you stand out and tell your story that will get a combination, yeah, a conversation with either a recruiter or a hiring manager. Um, so and I think that's specific to innovation. As I say, technology, it's more about key tools, uh, software, languages that you've got experience in. But for innovation, you can almost throw away the rule book in that it's such a mix of different experiences and skills. So you can't really hone it in on one thing. Um, so I think, again, it's that storytelling, getting it right in your opening profile. Do not be one of those people that is sitting there waiting for someone to find you. Uh, be proactive. Uh, get in touch with recruiters who specialize in that space. And I don't know how many of uh, recruiters there are out there. We do that, and I'm sure there are others. Um, but be proactive. We're always giving CV advice. Um, and, I, and I think that's uh, something people should be proactively asking for, particularly now when people, uh, you know, may be in unfortunate situations. Use this time to get your CV right. Um, so when the, the market does pick up again, you're in a really strong place. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I kind of faced this dilemma myself when I was thinking of, um, how exactly should I format my CV? Should I try and make it cool and hip and, you know, use all sorts of cool graphic designs and things like that to make it stand out? Or should I follow the regular run of the mill? And I, I try to gauge it towards the company I'm applying for or the recruitment agency um, that I'm, I'm, I'm speaking to. But in your opinion, uh, number one, is it better to try and do something cool and innovative on your CV so that it stands out or on your portfolio, whether that's online on LinkedIn or something like that? Should you try and stand out from the crowd? Um, I guess that's my first question. And then uh, the second thing is, does that actually work? I mean, does, does do people, does, 
the actual end consumer or the recruiter gravitate towards that uh, and think, wow, this person is thinking outside the box? Yeah, I think it's it's a bit of both. I think that the key thing here is if you're going to create a CV that isn't uh, kind of standard, what people expect, make sure, make sure people can open it on multiple devices. I think that's kind of the, the most important thing. If you create something that looks amazing, um, but the formatting is completely out versus uh, Microsoft, Apple, make sure it works on all devices first. But I think uh, the ability to stand out is a good thing. So I think if you can add in a bit of that, then brilliant. Um, but fundamentally, I think people expect a CV to look uh, look it look like it should or you know look a certain way so I wouldn't deviate too far from this is what people are used to seeing it, they know how to read it it's got a chronology of this is what you did this is that so I wouldn't deviate too much I think you can tell a really interesting story that makes you stand out in your profile for me that would be my suggestion I think if you sit in design um, then yeah a portfolio is massively important um, and again there's a there's a separate debate around what should a portfolio look like? How many pages should a portfolio be? Um, I think the answer to that is it's probably 10. Um, pick your best pieces of work. And the, the design piece is the same as the strategy and innovation side. It's what was the problem? What was the solution? What was the impact? And what did you specifically do? If you can lay out your portfolio answering those questions, it makes it really easy to read. Um, so, so I think, yeah, the answer to the question is I wouldn't deviate too far away from what people expect to see, um, but make sure you say something really interesting uh, or there's something exciting right at the beginning, um, because if there isn't, they may not go further um, than that opening profile if there isn't something that captures their attention. Um, very cool ones uh, before I saw someone create like a Mario game or something like that. And you had to go through different levels to see what they did in their career. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it kind of went viral online. And I was wondering to myself, did that actually end up with a job offer from it? Or were people like, this guy's way too wacky. Uh, I'm yeah. Hire this guy to, you know, work in this kind of environment that we have here. But uh, I'm sure you've seen some crazy examples on your side as well. Yeah. And I think that stuff is, is good. It's memorable. Um, so actually I, I do think that's good. I think there's a difference between, are you sending your CV to a recruiter? So I think if you think of recruiters might get hundreds of applications in a day for a job. Um, so they've got that process of going through. So yes, there's a piece of, I really want to stand out. Um, but there's also the, um, the reality that I've actually got to get through lots of CVs. So if there's easier ones to read and then you're thrown off by something else, it's either a positive or a negative. It goes one way or the other. But I think if you're applying for a specific job with a specific company, that type of approach could really play in your favor. It's it's memorable. They're not looking at loads of loads of CVs like a recruiter might be. So, yeah, I think it, it could work. And I think the age that we're in now is video interviewing. That's the reality. So. It may not be just about a CV now. An application for a job might be record a video. Talk about your story. Tell me your story. Tell me your CV. Bring that to life in a video. So I actually, I think there's a really interesting thing happening here with, with the market at the moment. Uh, and it's you know, in all different spaces, but for recruitment and hiring and talent specifically, uh, there's a different way of applying for jobs. And it hasn't all happened yet, but you can see the trends. Video uh, recruiting uh, has been going on for a while, but now it's video applications. So there's lots of things that are changing. So actually, people might want to think about, yeah, I can write a brilliant story. My narrative is great, but can you tell that story? So if your CV is now a video, um, then it, it's quite different. So it's, you know, how do you present yourself, tone of voice? Uh, and I think just picking up on one point you mentioned earlier, 
um, you should really uh, spend time thinking about the, the person you're applying to. And I think the recruitment agency should be there to give you advice when you go through to actually applying for a specific job. But if you're going direct, look at the company's website, look at their tone of voice. How do they talk about themselves? Um, try and relate to that because values are so important. They're a big part of the recruiting process, particularly if it's an HR person versus a practitioner looking at your experience. Um, so look at the tone of voice. Look at the type of work they do. Think about how you can bring your story um, and align it with the type of work they do, the tone of voice that they've got. Um, and then I think that in itself gives you uh, a slight advantage on the person that has just fired out an application and not bothered to really do their research. So research matters. And if you can articulate that in your CV, then I think it, it really helps you stand out from the crowd. And the recruitment game is changing so much. You mentioned like video. Uh, I'm on the AI panel and I remember they were saying uh, video is now going to start assessing things like body language and, you know, how confident you speak, your posture and all that kind of stuff. So it's getting really granular yeah. because it's so costly for people to hire someone and, you know, it doesn't work out. You know, it costs companies a lot of money. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's a good thing and a bad thing because you don't have to waste your time getting in the tube, going all the way across town to interview. You can just do a, you know, a Zoom call or whatever it is. Um, and then AI is making it a bit more efficient, but there might also be the opportunity to present bias in there, right? AI could have a bias against people that speak a certain way. They might be brilliant at what they do, but maybe they're not the best communicators, or maybe they were a bit slouchy that day or something like that. But um, do you see any biases that currently exist? And then um, do you think these new technologies will reinforce the biases or will they remove them in some way? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think there's, there's a couple of different points to that. I think there's uh, a real push um, around making sure that there is equality, diversity, inclusion in all walks of recruitment now. Um, so a lot of things that we have seen over the last few years are completely anonymized CV. So a lot of companies are saying, we just want their experience. That is all we want to look at. And I think when you take that away and you start looking at video interviewing, I don't know if it then brings back some of those biases. Um, so I think that's one thing to, to perhaps think through. Um, but I think there are lots of positives. I think the, the idea of what you've just said around, I didn't have to go on the tube. Um, I think that saves people a lot of time um, because, I mean, let's face it, I think if a company's looking for passive talent, so people who are not proactively uh, applying for jobs, uh, people who, who are in a job right now, they don't have time to travel for interviews. And that's not saying they're not interested, um, but I think the, the idea of video interviewing gives um, people a greater opportunity or more people the opportunity to get involved. So I think there is actually some really good inclusion in that. Um, but I think, yeah, you're right. There could be some new biases that, that come through and whether AI uh, through video is, is, is fully accurate is, is yet to be seen. Um, and I think there's, there's that. But then there are psychometric tests that are starting to, be, start, starting to become a bigger thing. So we're thinking about do we need to integrate some sort of testing? And I don't know what the specific testing is, and perhaps it's more gamification, um, but bringing in something to go beyond just a video, in, video interview or a phone call with a person, because that is just one thing. I think it's probably the most important thing, but are there other pieces of information using AI or different pieces of tech to showcase um, a person in a, in a slightly different light or from a slightly different perspective? So I think it's a combination. For us, two years ago, it was we met someone, uh, and our value was was kind of the human touch of this is why we specifically think that person is right for your business based on culture, um, but also based on experience. And that in itself, I think, is still the most important thing. But the beauty of video interviewing is we can save people time. We can do more. Um, and I think people just need to practice. And I think 
Uh, I mean, I'm on Zoom calls every day, whether that's work, also catching up with friends or family. So people are becoming more comfortable with that. And it's just just going to become the new normal, because I think in everything that's happening right now, can the world go backwards? I don't know. I don't think people are going to return to what was normal in January. Um, so people are going to need to adapt and move with uh, the different trends. And this is uh, a fairly obvious one for us. It's more video interviewing. Um, it's, uh, you know, reading and judging people to an extent on a platform like this, which uh, is fair and not fair in, in some regards, because I think most people with us specifically say, I don't want to have a call. I want to sit down with you, grab a coffee so we can actually build a bit of a relationship. Um, so actually, I think there's there's some pieces that do miss in video, but I think it's just working through that. And then are there pieces of AI that can perhaps validate or test different things for people who are perhaps not strong uh, on a video call? Um, but it'd be interesting to see how some of the, these things pan out. Yeah, most definitely. And especially with the whole remote working thing happening now, I mean, not too long ago, companies started to say, uh, you know, you can actually start to work from home a bit more extensively. And now they're thinking about making it permanent. And some companies actually have done that. And I don't know what the ramifications are from a recruitment perspective, but I think companies um, is sort of the new distributed workforce. Not everyone has to be in the office, um, which is a good thing because then you don't all have to, you know, uh, circle around these mega cities and pay the expensive rent and things like that. So ultimately, I, maybe I don't have to pay as much for my employee salary because now they can live out in, you know, remote areas and things like that. So the the world of remote work is changing. And you alluded to some things in, in terms of how it's changing the recruitment industry. But what do you see in the next year, two years, whatever it is, if companies wholeheartedly decide to adopt this remote working in its entirety how do you think recruitment will change beyond the process of actually recruiting people um is there anything else you think would change yeah i think so and i think we've got to be quite careful i think i i can look at this from lots of perspectives for me as an employer of my own staff i think when you take away uh the four walls of an office are you are you in some ways taking away the culture because i think uh, we have a fairly, uh, you know, diverse group of people. Some people like the socialization of, uh, you know, being around people in the office. Some people naturally gravitate to, you know what, headphones in, I want to get my work done in the corner. Um, but I think that, I mean, I know that's not the question we're asking, but I think it's one thing that people should be thinking about. And it's specific to innovation as well. How do you create a culture of innovation if you do not have four walls? Um, the office is a massive part. It's kind of the, the beating heart of the business. I think when you take that away, um, that creates one an opportunity space for innovation so how do we solve for that challenge and i think capability building and organizational design will look very different um but again big opportunity space there um so i think i think recruiting will change i think for us um we will still have an office um i think it's really important specifically for having a culture um i think people work better when they can bounce ideas off each other um, so we will still have that set up. I think the one thing that's going to change for us is that we will not be meeting um, people for the foreseeable future. We'll be doing video calls. Um, I'm hopeful that that changes soon, sooner rather than later, because I think people, as I, I think I said earlier, people get more value out of a coffee meeting where you can have a proper conversation, relax a little bit more. Um, so I'm, I'm hopeful that that does come back. But for recruiting, the, the process will move more towards video uh, and online testing. Um, which I think has been happening anyway. I think there's some laggards that haven't really adopted to it, but but now you have to. So I think those that can't pivot will be the ones that don't win. Um, but those that can will be uh, the success stories um, of, of what's to come over the next few years. 
In, in terms of, I mean, just stepping back a little bit about, about recruitment in general terms, would you say um, that recruitment is primarily for people that are fresh out of school that are just trying to find their first job? Or is it, you know, seasoned executives um, would speak to a firm like yours or they have a different caliber of, of company that they need to have a relationship with because they're at a higher level. But in general, there's this misconception that I only go to a recruiter when I'm coming out of college to get my first job. And after that, it's just me networking and I don't need a recruiter after that. Yeah. So I think, uh, I think that, I mean, I, I guess I'm in a slightly biased position, but I think um, recruiters really, um, play a, a critical role in helping people find um, the right career. I think, yes, networking is a massive part of it. Um, we have an office uh, in New York, and it is actually quite different. The alumni networks out there are huge, which I'm sure you know from your college days. Um, but, I mean, it, an innovation is, is fairly, I think, which I talked about earlier, fairly incestuous, so lots of people know lots of people. But actually, that's a small pond. The innovation um, industry or sector is exploding, so actually we need to go much further than that. Uh, and look at different skill sets. And I think that is where a brilliant recruiter um, is, is apt, absolutely um, paramount. So I think finding a recruiter that understands the space is critical. So I think for us, we've got a, a, a nice mix of people. So we do have um, uh, some junior people who are brilliant at researching and they play an absolutely vital role um, in, in what we do. Um, but we've got lots of people who are ex-consulting, um, people who've worked in innovation. So they're able to have a proper conversation. I think the one thing, if I was uh, looking for a job in innovation, the thing that would probably really frustrate me is talking to a recruiter who just didn't get it, couldn't ask the right questions, um, and was looking for a bunch of checklist boxes on your CV, which I, I think goes back to what I was saying, we don't. Um, so I think recruiters really do play a role. I think the reality is if you find a great recruiter, they will have better relationships. And, and I think the relationships that we have with our clients allow us to have um, both um, speculative and proactive conversations because we've got the relationship. Um, and I think going direct to a company, whilst people might think, well, actually, the recruiters get paid a fee. If I go direct, I cut that out. Perhaps I'm more uh, appealing to a company. Um, that's not always the case. I think that the reality is clients come to us for one of a few reasons. It's normally uh, I don't have time for this. Um, and, and if it's a small business, I've got priorities i need to be focusing on other stuff so recruitment talent talent hiring that's your thing um so i think people need to have uh, a, a, i guess an open um view on why recruiters work but just make sure you pick the right one make sure when you have that first conversation with the recruiter they get what you do if they do not get what you do move on find someone else because the reality is they will make the, the wrong match they'll send you the wrong opportunities and then it's just a waste of time for everyone, for the recruiter, uh, for the person, uh, and then potentially the company if it goes that far in the process. So make sure the person you speak to gets what you've done. And innovation is such a uh, kind of new but also nuanced area. Um, so there's not many people that get it, but there are there are recruiters that do. So it's trusting the recruiter. You can test a lot of that in the first conversation, but also ask them, who are your clients? What is your relationships? We've got a market map that kind of showcases the world that we play in. And I think that in itself is a really powerful stamp to say, yes, they are in the right space. Um, but have that conversation, sound them out. If they feel uh, right, then you've probably got a really good ally in seeing lots more opportunities. And I guess just, just to give you one other quick point on that, think about it from an estate agent's perspective. Um, there's loads of houses online, um, but the estate agent probably has uh, a bunch of others that haven't been marketed yet. Uh, it's the same with recruiters. There's lots of opportunities that aren't online that we have because of the relationships we have we have with our clients. They give us the opportunities first, almost exclusively, I guess, in the same way that you might be selling a house. 
Um, so that is another reason to speak to a recruiter is to get a wider perspective of um, the jobs out there, but also uh, their ability to not only look at the skills, but also say, I know this company, I know their culture, this would be a great fit or it wouldn't be a great fit for you. Um, so, yeah, I think those are probably the reasons why uh, recruiters can still be extremely useful, particularly in niches. And innovation is one of those. Um, but finding a good one uh, will be um, an absolute lifesaver. Finding a bad one will be really frustrating. Oh, man, tell me about it. I've had experiences like that. And the recruiter just is a very generic one and they don't understand my space specifically. So you can tell that they, they don't know how to actually judge whether your answers are good or not because they're, they're not in that space, right? So having that niche is very important. And then secondly, something that you mentioned, which was pretty key was, yeah, not all jobs are advertised. I remember seeing somewhere that it's like less than 15% of all jobs are put out there into the public, right? It's all about networks and things like that. So that's a, a very key advantage to it. And last but not least, you touched on the fees. And um, one misconception I'm thinking of here is, um, you know, that recruiters don't have to charge for their services, um, or at least they don't charge the end client, uh, uh, or the, the person being recruited, they charge the, the, the main uh, company. Um, but is that always the model that works? Or is that how it's always done? They only... Uh, charge uh, X percent of the person's salary uh, to the person that gets the hire? Or are there other ways of charging? Do you, do you sometimes charge the actual person being recruited? Uh, what's the sort of business model like? Yeah, and I think that's, I mean, we're looking at it at the moment. I think with the downtime that we've got, we're, we're, we're thinking about uh, what is our proposition? What is our business model? Are there different ways of looking at the commercial side? Um, and I think in the UK, uh, there's specific legis legislation and rules around what you can and can't do. So charging candidates is something for, for actually finding a job uh, is, is something that's quite difficult to do. I think there's pieces of, of advice and services you can sell to candidates, which are slightly different, which might be how do I tell that story? How do I get better at video interviewing or coaching? Um, but I think charging them for finding a job is, is particularly hard in the UK. It's a little bit different in the US. Um, so actually in the US, you see more of those models where candidates go to recruiters and pay a fee to say, look, go and find me my dream job. Um, so that exists, exists more in the US. Um, but there's lots of different models out there. I think the, the most common contingent model is um, you place a candidate and you take a percentage of that person's first year annual salary, which their employer pays. Um, so the candidate, the person employed, pays nothing. This is specific to us in the UK and lots of other recruiters. Um, but that being said, we have a bunch of different models, like, like some of the other recruiters out there that are thinking about different ways of doing things. One of them is being kind of a, almost an embedded internal recruiter that brings some outside in perspective. So we would charge uh, a client uh, almost a retainer. So they might say to us, look, We've got loads of work coming in, super ambitious plans, and we want to step change our growth over the next six months. To do that, we need to hire 30 people. Take that problem off my plate. So they would come to us with that. And on that type of scenario, that type of model, which is typically a startup that's got investment or a scale up, um, we would charge them a monthly retainer. And there's a small success fee, which I think is important for both sides when someone actually gets a job. Um, but what it does is avoids those recruitment spikes. So if you think about contingent, you hire someone, huge placement fee, uh, and that kind of spirals and spirals and spirals. Where if you look at the retained model, what you're doing is allowing, allowing them to manage their cash flow better, avoid those spikes, and it really suits that type of business that says I've got multiple hires to make, uh, and it's a better model that, that kind of fits that. So there are different ways of doing it, and I think new ones will start to come out. I think recruiting is... Uh, by virtue of the type of uh, business it's in, is sales um, generated. So 
salespeople specifically normally work towards commission or target. So I think you've got to be careful which parts you you tweak or change. Um, but I think there are different ways of doing it. I think it's specific to the client. Is it one person you want or are you trying to build a team? And I think the team thing has a slightly different retainer model than, uh, than, than, than the traditional contingent one that might work slightly better. Um, but I think there'll be new things that continue to come out. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that makes perfect sense. Uh, well, thanks for your time. Is there, uh, if people want to find out more about you and your company, where's the best place for them to find you? So the best place is our website. It says bamboocrown.com. Um, and we've got a bunch of um, different um, pieces of content on there. So there is a jobs page. If you want to find jobs, um, get on the website. There's also some content around um, getting a career in innovation. So there's lots of pieces on there. So that's probably the best place. We're on um, Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, Instagram, all of those different places as well. But I think our website is, uh, is probably the best place for hopefully some inside inspiration around the different bits and pieces that we do, but also uh, importantly, the jobs that we actually recruit. Fantastic. Well, thanks, Drew. Pleasure. Thanks, Saka. Well, that's it for this week's episode. Hopefully, you guys learned a thing or two. Drew's a really smart guy, and he has a lot of insights and knowledge. You can always reach out to him by just going to bamboocrowd.co.uk. At least I think that's what it is. Search it up on LinkedIn or any other platform. I'm sure you'll find so much on there. Don't forget to like our page on Facebook, Instagram, and all the other social media platforms. But more importantly, leave a review if you thought this episode was good. And you can also leave suggestions of what kinds of interviews you'd like to hear going forward. Take care, and I'll see you guys next week.